Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 20, 29 to 34. Um, when I was, uh, when we have, Andrew and I have three kids, and uh, when our third was on the way, we decided to do things a little bit different. We hired one of those birth coaches. I don't know, I felt like we were pretty much veterans by this point, but for some reason, we decided to hire one of those birth coaches. And there's, they're interesting because if you don't know anything about them, I didn't know anything about them either, they, they can actually give you some insight. The one we hired was... Um, formerly a nurse at the hospital where we were going, and so she knew all the ins and outs. She knew all the things that you could ask for that you don't know you can ask for. She knew all the things that you can have in your room that you would otherwise be completely oblivious to that actually make it kind of nice. Some soothing jazz music, you know, some like dim lights, and some Christmas lights were even hung in our room. It was like, it was very soothing. But one of the things that you do when you sit down with them is you develop this sort of birth plan, you know, and you tell them what you, what you want, what you like, and what you don't like, and all those kinds of things, and they ask you a bunch of questions. And one of the things that she told us is, you're going to labor at home. That's what you want to do. You want to labor at home, and then you want to get to the hospital in time to have the baby. And I, I, at the time, I was thinking, yeah, let's emphasize the in time to have the baby part, okay? As long as we're there, you know? And so the time arrives, and we're about 25 miles away from Dallas, around the place where we're supposed to have this child, and so, um, so you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is fine, we're, we're okay, we're, we're doing well, so we call the birth coach, and we're like, okay, it's, it's, it's time, you know, I think it's time, and she's like, how far part of the contractions, you know, the Heathcliff Huxtable question, and so we, we're, we're, we're like, you know, they're a few minutes apart, she goes, okay, you're still, you still got plenty of time, just you know, wait there and, and just labor a little bit more at home. And we're like, okay, okay. And so we wait a little bit longer and we call, okay, now I think it's really getting close. It's, it's really, really getting time. And she says, oh, okay, just a little bit longer. And so we wait just a little bit longer. And then we call her and we're like, okay, it's, it's, it's time. And she goes, yeah, that's about right. Let's, let's go ahead and, and leave and go to the hospital. And so we get in the car, Andrea's mom had come to watch the kids, the boys, and so we get in the car, and we're, we're packed up, and, and Andrea tells me on the way, you need to step on it. And I was like, you mean step on it? And she was like, step on it. And I was like, but red lights and stop signs, blow through them. <laughs> and so I don't know how fast you've ever seen a minivan go, but... <laughs> I'm going down the highway so fast that, and I never looked at the speedometer because I just didn't want to know, but I'm going down the highway so fast that cars going 70 miles an hour appear next to me and then look like Tic Tacs in my rearview mirror like that. I am flying down the highway. We come in on two wheels to that hospital, <laughs> screeching into the, into the labor and delivery, and there's our birth coach, met us right outside, took a right in, and sure enough, five minutes just in time. But I'm going to tell you what, on the way, there was nothing anybody could say to me to slow me down. There was not a stop sign that could have been, could have popped up that would have been important. There was not a stoplight that could have been read that I would have listened to. There wasn't a police siren behind me that I would have obeyed in that moment. Because as it turns out, moments of crisis like that bring clarity to what's really important, don't they? You have that moment of crisis, and then all of a sudden you realize there's only one thing that's important, because I'm not delivering this baby. That's, that's just not something that's going to happen, all right? And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there, because moments of crisis, they clarify what is important. This morning we're going to see Jesus heal a blind man, and there's a temptation, I think, on on a lot of our parts, probably, to read this story and go, hey, this goes in the list of other miracles that Jesus has done. We've seen in this book, he's done tons of miracles already. There's a temptation for this miracle to just be another humdrum, ho-hum, brief story that Matthew is telling us before he goes on. But we're going to see that this is much more than just a humdrum miracle on his way to the cross. We're going to see by the end of this sermon and this passage one 
last reason why Jesus came to us. Let's read in our Bibles this morning, Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this passage, you would open it up before us, open our eyes to it, that we may see, that we may see what you're intending by including this in your word and reporting it to us so faithfully this morning. Pray that you would speak through me in place of me to all of us here this morning, to all of us watching online. I pray that you would open our hearts, that we can understand it and see it with spiritual eyes, that we can apply it to our lives this morning. Without you, this is pointless. So I pray that you would open this text in front of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the best thing that we can do as Christians is to learn to look at the world through spiritual eyes. Spiritual eyes allow you to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. So that means that you would see politics in the way that Jesus sees politics. Big events that would happen, pandemics, you would see the way Jesus sees big events. But it also means that you would look at everything that happens around you with not just your physical eyes, but with your spiritual eyes also. So that means that your Christian friends are no longer just merely friends, acquaintances that you go to church with, people that you know who profess the same things as you do, but the Bible calls them your brother or your sister. See, with spiritual eyes, they are not just fellow believers, they are kindred. They're part of your family. They're people that you share a deep bond with, so deep that you will spend eternity together. People who, right now, their job is to help you to cross the finish line of faith. That's having spiritual eyes to see the people around you. With spiritual eyes, your unbelieving friends are no longer just unbelieving friends. They're people whose souls are dangling over the precipice of hell, who don't yet believe that Christ is their Savior, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who have no hope and are without God in the world. It's pretty bleak. The movie or a TV show that you watch or that you enjoy is no longer just casual forms of entertainment. Things that you can just relax your mind and, and just watch and be at ease. But it is presenting to you a view of the world that over time slowly will move you one direction or the other. It's advocating a world to you. And if you're not careful when taking these in, I don't believe all TV is the devil, I don't believe Netflix is the devil and all that kind of stuff, but if you're not careful, it will slowly train you to look at the world differently. As a Christian, we can't afford to look at the world around us with just our physical eyes. We have to see it with our spiritual eyes as well. We are being led, in many cases, when we engage in secular activities, we're being led by carnal people. When you look at the world with spiritual eyes, what you will see is that you are in a constant battle between two kingdoms. Everything is a war between those two kingdoms. Nothing is benign. Nothing is bipartisan. 
Everything is a battle between two kingdoms. Everything is a war over your allegiance, one way or the other. The whole Bible is written about this battle. The entire thing is written about this battle. Going all the way back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve are created to be vice-regents in God's kingdom. To carry out His will, His dominion, to exercise His rule and His reign over the earth. That's their job. That's what they're tasked to do. But sin doesn't just enter God's kingdom when it enters in, in the Garden of Eden. It captures all of His citizens and holds them in bondage to corruption. Holds them in bondage under its thumb. And God's people are held in captivity to sin, bound to die throughout the entire Old Testament. In the entire Old Testament, that's what we see, is that the effects of the Garden of Eden have really held us in captivity, in bondage to decay, to the decay of of sin. But, also in the Old Testament, we're told that a Savior is coming. We're told in Ezekiel 34, 22-24, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This shepherd, the son of David, has come into the world, and Matthew actually tells us about him at the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1. He tells us that he is, that this Jesus is from the line of David and that he is from the uh, line of Abraham. He is a fulfillment of the prophecy of David that, that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, where he says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But then we also find out in Matthew that he is the child of Abraham, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David is here, Matthew says who is going to rescue God's people from sin, from that captivity under which they're held. And the angel tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. But if you follow along the Gospel story, it takes a weird turn, doesn't it? If we didn't know the ending... It would take a very weird and unexpected turn because as it turns out, this person who is coming to rescue us from bondage to death, from bondage to sin, is actually himself walking to death. Well, how does that work? How can a person who is supposed to save us from death walk to death himself? If he dies, how could he possibly rescue us from death? That doesn't work, does it? In fact, in the last few passages, we realize maybe we've been misunderstanding some things because Jesus tells them, even in the past few weeks that we've read, He just underscores this very fact. This is going to happen. The disciples, the ones that Jesus had handpicked to follow Him, these twelve, He has trusted with His very life up to this point, are convinced that he will not only be setting the captives free, but that he's going to march into Jerusalem and he is going to, at this present moment, rid the world of the Romans. Specifically, rid the promised land of the Romans. The Romans, the Gentiles, they're gone too. Death itself, out of here. In fact, anyone and everyone who stands up as a 
opponent to Christ has to go. We're going to walk into Jerusalem, and that's what Jesus is going to do. Because after all, he is the Messiah, and if he is the Messiah, then anyone who opposes him has to be punished by his rule at this very moment. And everyone who is with him, everyone who's following with him, must be the beneficiaries right now of that reign. Remember James and John last week? They're wanting to sit next to him on his left and on his right, on his thrones that he's going to set up. Peter says to him in, 20, in verse 27, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So James and John are worried about their power and authority, and Peter is wanting to turn in his receipts for his business expenses that he's incurred along the way. Jesus, I've left everything. Are you going to reimburse me for these expenses that I have? But in between these two responses, in between Peter asking for reimbursement and James and John asking for power, Jesus makes this very simple statement. We're going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me and kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. And it's a prophecy that seems to go over the head of the disciples. They miss it completely. They certainly don't understand what he's saying. So here in this passage, in his last real stop, before he gets to Jerusalem, we're in the city of Jericho. Jesus, Matthew says, is leaving Jericho. Well, this is kind of a problem. Let me just mention this in case you ever get somebody asking you a question about this, or maybe you have a question yourself. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus is leaving Jericho, and Luke tells us that he is entering Jericho. He's arriving at Jericho. So Mark and Matthew tell us he's leaving Jericho. Luke tells us he's entering Jericho. Which is it? Which one's telling us the truth? And the answer, of course, is yes. Jesus is leaving the ancient city of Jericho, and he is arriving in the modern city of Jericho. The ancient city of Jericho is something that Matthew and Mark's audience would have been well acquainted with, because it is, the, after all, the Jewish city of Jericho. They recognize the ancient city of Jericho. So when they say he's leaving Jericho, his, their audiences, who are predominantly Jewish, understand what city he's talking about, whereas Luke's audience who is predominantly Gentile, would be more acquainted with the modern city of Jericho. Jesus is entering that city, which is built by Herod the Great and is about a mile to the south of the Old Testament city of Jericho. So he is both leaving Jericho and he is entering Jericho, depending on which Jericho you're talking about. But Jesus has this great crowd that's following him. He's walking along the way and he has this big group that's following him. And they have followed him all the way since Galilee. In fact, some of them are probably following him. Some of them are probably just part of the group that's going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so them, as a bunch of Galileans, are following. They're following this great miracle worker all the way to Jerusalem, even though, as we've already seen, they don't totally understand who he is or what he's really come to do. But they certainly know that they need to follow him because, after all, he is the miracle worker. See, the crowd following Jesus in their assumption that Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom in the here and now are not seeing the world with spiritual eyes. They're looking primarily in the physical and seeing what benefit Jesus can give to their physical lives. The kingdom of darkness that they are trapped in has led them to think that their captor is the Romans. That's what they think. They think that their primary opponent, the main one that is doing them harm in this world, are the Romans. Their grandparents before them thought it was the Seleucids. Before them, it was the Greeks. Before them, it was the Babylonians. Before them, it was the Assyrians. Each generation after the other has been fully convinced through their worldly eyes that if the Messiah would come, He would throw off these oppressive captors that we might truly be free. Never realizing 
that if he threw off the captors, they would still be in the snare of their own sin. And as long as they were held under its yoke, they would never be free. Hopefully by now, you catch this sense of irony in this passage as Jesus is walking by. The irony that the crowd of sighted people, people that can see, that have followed Jesus since the beginning, they don't totally get it. They don't totally understand who Jesus is. And yet, here are two blind men on the road out of Jericho that are able to perfectly identify him. They call out to him, Son of David, help us. This is one of the handful of times in the Gospel of Matthew that people actually identify Jesus this way as the Son of David. The first time was in Chapter 9, verse 27, where it was also two blind men who call him the son of David. Another time was a Canaanite woman in 1522. We'll talk about both of them in just a minute. But now here we have two blind men again. And these people have rightly seen, even though they can't see, they have rightly seen with their spiritual eyes who this Jesus actually is. And these are the least of society. These aren't the smartest people. These aren't the brightest people. These certainly aren't the strongest people. These aren't the people that one looks to for sage wisdom. But they're the ones through whom God the Father chooses to proclaim who Jesus is as He's on His way to Jerusalem. Remember Jesus tells the crowd back in chapter 11 of Matthew 11:25, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will." See, the irony is heightened in this scene too because the sighted crowd attempts to silence these two blind men. They're not just content with him calling out who Jesus is, they attempt to actually silence these two blind men. Be quiet. You're annoying. That's my interpretation. But the more the crowd attempts to silence these two people, the more the crowd attempts to turn the red light on their mouth, the more they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. They will not be silenced. Nothing can impede them. The title that these two blind men use is even more ironic, mainly because of what's going to happen in the next passage. In the next passage, of course, Jesus, we know this passage, Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people that are right now in the crowd are going to stand around Him, hailing Him as King. But this passageway on a donkey, riding into Jerusalem, is mimicking how Solomon was crowned King. The literal son of David was crowned king in a very similar way. He was riding on a donkey, riding into the town as people were there to coronate him as king. And here, Jesus, the son of David, is coming to do the same thing. If you need any more irony, Jesus is then going to go into the temple and He's going to cleanse the temple in the passage right after that. And all the children in the temple are going to again proclaim Him as the Son of David and be awed by the miracles that He's working. But the chief priests, the scribes, the ones who are supposed to be enlightened to the ways of God, the most learned men in all of Israel, are going to stand there indignant because they don't think He's deserving of the title. So even though they understand, or they think they know, how to read the Word, even though they have eyes physically to see, they are spiritually blind, albeit physically sighted. Here in this passage, we have two physically blind men who are spiritually sighted, and they are educating the crowd that's following Jesus. Occasionally, there's some differences in the Gospels that we need to 
account for, like the Jericho thing that I mentioned a minute ago, but I want to talk briefly about this one. For instance, here in Matthew, uh, he says that there's two blind men, and Mark and, uh, and Luke actually both record a blind man, and Mark goes so far as to name him Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Jesus healed a blind man named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Luke also, as I said, records him as a blind man. Jesus walked walked into Jericho and he healed a blind beggar that was there along the road. But he doesn't mention a second one, neither does Mark. And I think it's important to remember, because Matthew does this in a couple of different places, where he names two people that other Gospels name only one. In this case, a man named Bartimaeus is healed and doesn't mention a second one that was also healed. Now, in all likelihood, the record of Bartimaeus being healed in the other two Gospels is probably because when all was said and done, Bartimaeus actually became an intricate follower of Jesus and, implement, uh, and, and instrumental in the church in Jerusalem. So much so that Mark could mention him to the audience, and the audience, predominantly Jews, would hear his name and recognize, oh, that was Bartimaeus. That's when Bartimaeus was healed? Oh, gotcha. They understand who he is. Luke is writing to Gentiles, and he mentions a man that's healed that was born blind, but uh, doesn't tell us his name, probably because the Gentile audience that Luke is writing to wouldn't know him if you said his name to begin with. But I think it bears mentioning that just because there was a man, a man that was cured, that was born blind, doesn't mean there weren't also a second man born blind. Matthew is giving us a precise number of the, of the men that were healed there on the road where Mark and Luke tend to single out the individuals that are going to make the most impact in their story, Mark specifically calling him by name so that people will know this was a miracle attested to that I can go to Bartimaeus right now and ask him if it's true. So Jesus bends down on the road in front of these two men and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And they ask, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And in pity, it says, in pity, Jesus touches their eyes and they recover their sight and follow him because it tells us what Matthew has included this story in this section of the gospel to tell us that Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. Now, this particular scene seems as though it's another miracle in just a list, a running list, of amazing things that Jesus has done. I mean, he walked on water. He calmed the storm. He multiplied bread. And here we have just another miracle that falls in the list. But I think we should consider it maybe a little bit more than even just that. That's impressive in its own right. We shouldn't be bored by the miracles that Jesus does. Certainly they do prove something to us. They do show us that Jesus is who he said he was. Here are men that have seen this and they are writing it down during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It's part of what gives credibility to the Bible that these men were willing to record it in the time of other eyewitnesses so that the people that were reading it in that time could actually go and check. In all likelihood, they knew Bartimaeus, and they could go ask him, was this really you on the road? Yeah, he healed me. He he, he reached down, just like Mark says there, he reached down, just like Matthew says, he reached down and, and he healed me. So that's important. We don't need to pass over it for just for for uh, for any reason on miracles, but it's our temptation is to read through it like this is just a history that Matthew is recording for us. That this is just like a history book. Well, here's another fact. This is also what happened. But you notice Matthew doesn't record the story of Zacchaeus, which happens right now, and Luke does record that. Matthew doesn't record that at all. Matthew's not just recording for us a history like it's a history book. He's actually making a point to us. Jesus is here on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again on the third day. And this healing of the two blind men may seem like an inconsequential part of the actual story that's going on. Well, this is just one more thing that happens on his way to Jerusalem. However, I want you to consider just a couple of things about this passage 
and the passages in the context around this passage that tell us something more that Matthew is trying to tell us, help us understand. First, I want you to consider that in the previous passages, the disciples have failed to understand who Jesus is. The disciples have failed to understand who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus has told them three times that he's going to Jerusalem and that he was going to die. And all three times, the disciples indicate that they're not big fans of that plan. They don't really like the agenda that he has laid out here. In fact, remember the first time where Peter actually rebukes Jesus. He stands up and he says, may it never be for you to go in there and die. And that's when Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance for me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You might say he was saying, you are not seeing with spiritual eyes, you're seeing with physical eyes. And Jesus tells the disciples again what he's going to do, that he will be raised on the third day. And we're told in 1723, and they were greatly distressed. They don't want to speak out, obviously, because Peter just got called Satan, so we don't want to do that. So they, they are distressed. They're inwardly in turmoil. So he then tells them a third time. And in the passage that immediately precedes this one, James and John trail behind their mother, likely Jesus' aunt Salome, to ask Jesus if they can sit on the thrones immediately to his left and to his right in his kingdom. To which Jesus replies, you don't know what you're asking. Now this is on top of the number of times Jesus has pointed out to the disciples that they have a general lack of understanding of who he is. And after he multiplies the bread, they are blind to the fact that he can do it a second time. How is it that you can watch somebody multiply bread once and then you can turn around and see a great crowd and go, I don't know how we're going to feed these people. Second time. How do you do that? Matthew has told us over and over and over and over again that they're blind. That they can't see. In chapter 12, Jesus heals a blind and mute man who is demon-possessed and in verse 23, the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? The crowds aren't nearly as blind as the Pharisees are. They at least, the disciples and the crowds, have at least some glimpse and some kind of understanding where the Pharisees are just completely and totally in the dark. But, but still, the disciples on the whole are a little bit dull-hearted. They don't quite understand what they're seeing, what they're looking at with their eyes. Even when Jesus does a miracle right in front of them, even when he multiplies bread or when he calms a storm or when he does whatever, they, they look at it and go, what on earth are we seeing right now? So the disciples have failed to really understand who Jesus is. Second, I want you to think through the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, and I want you to see that those who are in the most desperate need See Jesus as he truly is. In the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, the people who are in the most desperate need see Jesus for who he truly is. We've, we've seen countless examples of this throughout the Gospel where those who are in uh, the least advantageous positions end up seeing Jesus for who he truly is and end up being the closest to the kingdom of, of God. Uh, a story similar to this one happens, like I mentioned, all the way back in Matthew 9, verse 27, where two blind men are healed. You can write that down. You can look at it some other time. But they also call him Son of David at a point where very few know his name. And then there's this Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15 who also calls out to him. And this is what it says. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severe, severely oppressed by a demon. But it says he did not answer her a word. And listen what the disciples do. Same thing as the crowd did in our passage. The disciples came to him begging, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Can you please shut her up? And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, this is obviously 
incredibly significant, especially in Matthew calling this woman a Canaanite. That's an old word, an ancient term that really wasn't used in Matthew's day, and yet he calls her a Canaanite, so he puts her back in the Old Testament in this ancient tribe of pagans. So here are just five examples. Two blind men in our passage, two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, and one Canaanite woman in the middle of the book that seem to identify accurately who Jesus is. They call him Son of David. A title they really have no business calling him. First of all, the, two, the four blind men don't even know he's coming or don't know, can't see with their physical eyes who he is. And here's a Canaanite woman who is a pagan. What business does she have calling him son of David? It's a term, by the way, that Matthew uses all the way back at the beginning of the book. Here is Jesus, son of David. And his aim is to convince you throughout the entire book that this really is the son of David that was promised to us. And all of those in deepest need, in utter desperation, seem to know without equivocation who this man is. So the disciples who have been with Jesus since the very beginning can't seem to grasp it, yet these five do. Common denominator, of course, is that they are in desperate need. They're in a time of crisis. And all of a sudden, their spiritual world grows abundantly clear. They see exactly who Jesus is. With the utmost clarity, in my time of need, in my time of crisis, there is only one person who can fix this. And it's that man, Jesus, son of David. The blind men cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd tries to hush them, and the disciples try to silence the Canaanite woman as well. But in their moment of crisis, when they think that they have found the only solution to their problems, do you think that the crowds can actually silence them? Do you think that they care at that moment how crazy the rest of the world thinks that they are? They don't. In fact, the disciples lead you to believe with the Canaanite woman that she's pestering them. She will not be quiet. If you've ever seen a mother with their kid, you, you know what we're talking about here. In time of crisis, no. She's not going to let the disciples just walk on. She's not going to let the disciples ignore her. And she doesn't care who thinks she's crazy. Because her world has all of a sudden been developed with the utmost clarity as she's now seeing with spiritual eyes for the first time who this man actually is and what he's come to do for her. The biggest problem in their life at that moment has a solution. And if they have to move heaven and earth to get there, they will. They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Let our eyes be opened. And it was out of pity that Jesus healed them. He felt sympathy for their need, and He met them right then and there because those in desperate need, in crisis, recognize Him. And Jesus responds. Now, I want you to think back to the whole Gospel of Matthew. Think all the way back as an example to the Beatitudes all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. You remember those? Blessed is the, blessed is the, blessed is the. He goes through all the blesseds there in Matthew chapter 5. He opens the Sermon on the Mount with that. Well, if you think back to the first few that he says there, he's describing the character of those truly accepted in his kingdom. And this is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Hear that? Poor in spirit. Mourn, for those they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Think about what Jesus has just told his disciples in just the previous couple of verses. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
the passage that we're reading is not merely just the healing of a couple of blind men on the way to the cross. This passage is highlighting what Matthew has been telling us since the beginning about being a disciple of Jesus. It's those who are in their most desperate need that are welcomed in the kingdom of heaven. It's those who with spiritual eyes accurately discern who Jesus is and what He has come to do for them. It's them that are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. For many in the world, Jesus is a philosopher, a wise sage. He's someone who gives a lot of wisdom and a lot of counsel. He's someone who tried to show us how to live But that's because they don't see themselves as desperately wicked and in dire need of salvation. That's the reason Jesus has become a philosopher to them. That's the reason He has become a sage. Is because they think that when it's all over, they're going to stand before God if they stand before anyone, and they're going to extol their virtues to Him, and He's going to go, wow, you're really a pretty good person. Why don't you come on in? And for that reason, Jesus is just another wise person in the list. Just come to show us the way. As if, if he showed us the way, we could actually live it. I do think he did come to show us. Sure, how to live. Yeah, absolutely. How are you doing with that? It's amazing that no one seems to be able to hit the target. Almost like we can't. Others see Jesus as a liar, a first century rabbi. He was just a rabbi. He tried to lead a revolt against the Jewish system. And he failed, obviously, because the Romans crucified him. But they see themselves at the same time as God's people. That's why they see him as a rabbi who failed. Because they see themselves as God's people. They see themselves as on the inside of the kingdom of heaven. Well, if God were to welcome anybody, wouldn't He welcome us? We are His people, after all. We are on the inside of the kingdom of heaven. They see themselves that way instead of ones that rejected God Himself as He came to them in the flesh to save them. And still right now continue to reject Him. Now, time and time again, Matthew reiterates to us in his gospel that it's the sinners, the tax collectors, even the Gentiles, prostitutes. It's all those who have one common denominator that they know that there is nothing redeemable about them. All of them recognize that fact that they're sinners on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. All of them recognize that they are in their most dire need at this point. Who have spiritual eyes to see themselves as they truly are. Outside of the kingdom of heaven. All of them in Matthew, all of them in the gospel, all of them in the New Testament, all of them in the Bible. All of those that are welcomed into God's kingdom see themselves that way. And they recognize that this Jesus, this Son of David, is the Messiah. He he is the one who has come to give his life as a ransom for me. The one who has come to spare me from an eternity in hell. Friends, you will not truly see Jesus and understand who he is until you see your desperate need for him. It won't happen. If you think that you're a pretty good person, then who cares about Jesus? But in the event that you do see yourself as on the road to hell, all of a sudden this guy who died and rose from the dead doesn't sound so crazy. All of a sudden, Christmas 
has a different meaning. All of a sudden, Easter has a different meaning. All of a sudden, life around me takes on a different meaning. All of a sudden, I now see the battle between two kingdoms at war. All of a sudden, now I see with spiritual eyes that I have been blindfolded up to this very point. All of a sudden, I now see the meaning of life. Because until your spiritual eyes are opened and you see the depths of your despair, you will never appreciate Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do. Are you there? Perhaps you're here or you're watching maybe and you're feeling particularly ensnared by sin. You come back to your sin time and time again and you swear in those little moments of sobriety after your sin is over that you'll never go back there again. Man, I'll never do that again. That was foolishness. I will never do that again. And you swear it off. Yet no matter how many times you feel those moments of sobriety that follow on the heels of the moments of despair, no matter how many times you feel like that, you still continue to return back to your sin like a dog to his vomit. And you wonder what it'll take. Let me tell you, there is nothing that will change in any of that until your satisfaction in walking in obedience to Christ is greater than the satisfaction you feel following after your sin. Nothing's ever going to change. Until you see Christ and obedience to Him as providing way more joy, way more satisfaction then anything you find in your sin, you're always going to continue to go back to your sin. And it's going to continue to entangle you because we want joy. God made us that way. We seek after it. But His intention is for us to find joy in Him. See, the good news for you is that when you hit that moment of deepest need, when crisis closes in and you all of a sudden develop tunnel vision and you actually see the world as it really is and see the war over your soul for what it really is, when you realize that that sin will never truly satisfy you and that all it's ever done is destroyed your life, when you're in that moment of deepest crisis, and you realize that you're hanging over the precipice of hell, there you will find Jesus. Stooping down in pity, in sympathy, to rescue you. To open your eyes to see your sin. If that's you, ask Him. Ask Him to. Ask Him to show you your sin the way He sees your sin. Ask Him to show you your spiritual poverty. How poor you really are without Him. Brothers and sisters, we're approaching Christmas. Family is getting together. Many of you are praying that these family members of yours would find Christ that they would experience the joy of salvation. My question to you is, do you believe He still opens the eyes of the blind? All of the opening the eyes here is a prelude to what is to come. Where the lame will walk and all the blind will see and Christ returns, there will be no more sin or sickness, no more sorrow or sadness. But right now, do you believe that He still opens the eyes of the spiritually blind? Continue to pray for your family members. They're the hardest. The hardest to deal with.
hardest to share the gospel with, they got all the goods on you. They know everything you've ever done. And they'll bring it up. But you see, it's arrogance. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel. If we try to hide that, like it didn't happen. The gospel gives us the freedom to own it. And to say, yeah, I did all of that. Look how great Christ is because he can save me. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was a slave trader. You know, he can write those words. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, now I see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every eye in this room, every eye watching. Only you can open them. Only you can help us to see Christ for who He truly is. Only you can produce the fruit that the Spirit produces in our heart. Only you can produce that in our lives. I pray that you would open our eyes to see. There are some, I know, still walking in darkness. They're here, or they're watching, or they're going to church somewhere. They're thinking to themselves they are Christians because they go to church. Only you can open their eyes. Only you can expose their poverty. Pray you would do so. That we may see in this city, in this church, baptism after baptism after baptism from people who were blind but now see. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.